the CISM, particularly the new CISM, is in a unique position to serve the human beings of an organization with a type of service that they have traditionally gotten from their leadership structures in the past. And it's an exceptional, in my opinion, it's an exceptional challenge, uh, but one that is a real honor to get an opportunity to undertake. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Benjamin Edelin about building you and your organization's first cybersecurity program from scratch. The challenges of doing so in an organization that has little relationship with cybersecurity and what he learned from doing so successfully. As a new CISO, building your first cybersecurity program is a test, and some people naturally end up putting a lot of themselves into it. How, when it's the right time to move on, can you disconnect from something so personal while ensuring that the program continues to be successful? Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. If you would, for the uninitiated, introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, my name is Benjamin Elin. I am the former Chief Information Security Officer of the City of Boulder. I have ended my time at the City of Boulder a couple weeks ago, and I do quite a bit of cybersecurity work within my community as well. So I try really hard to protect a variety of organizations with people-first cybersecurity strategy by seeking to get the basics right, and by washing people's backs so that they have the room to go out into the world and accomplish amazing things. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm in between security leadership roles right now. So my traditional intro <laughs> is somewhat modified. Yeah. Well, that's being worked on now. That's headed in a, in a different, but I think exciting path as well for you. And that's part of what we're going to talk about Today, I think kind of both sides of that perspective where what's it like to build a program, then what's it like to leave it? What's it like to deal with the stress and sometimes anxiety of the position as well? So I think we're going to cover all of that. And one of the statements you made to me is that, and I really like this, is you stated the problem with building a security organization from scratch is that it becomes your personality. And I, I couldn't agree anymore. Tell us a little bit about, about that, about that, that journey. This is, you've been there a while, you put a lot of sweat equity into it, and now it's time to go. So yeah. take us back to kind of the beginning and describe what you meant by that as it becomes your personality. What does that mean? About five years ago, I was selected as the first cybersecurity leader at the city of Boulder. And before that, the city really only had sort of an internal IT department security team meeting that managed cybersecurity for the organization. But they had a CIO who I think rightly identified that cybersecurity was going to be a normalized function of government very soon. And that a cybersecurity leader who was looking at the whole organization's security posture was going to bring significant value. And I I did some, some stuff to get myself well positioned for that role. I was already a member of the IT department and had been baking security into a lot of my work. Uh, but the truth is that there was absolutely no security program. We had only minimal policies. 
we had no operations, no procedures in place, other than just some basic review of our configurations during change control. So when I was selected, I uh, had a little bit of a crisis because I had bitten off a lot to build a program from scratch, my first program, and to operate in an organization that had no relationship with cybersecurity was a big challenge. And the way that I probably, part of my personality is, the way that I rise to those kinds of challenges is to make it personal. And so I poured a lot of myself into the creation of a program. And I used my own face and my personality and communication style to sell a lot of people on the idea that we were forming a cybersecurity culture and that joining it would be in the you know the best interest of our organization and maybe even rewarding from the standpoint of sharing some skills that might help people protect their families from some of these risks that they're reading about in the news. But that had the ultimate effect of making the program deeply intertwined with my personality. And then the role itself was something that that I internalized. So part of my understanding of who I was as a person was this role that I had within my organization. So I'm a father, you know, I'm a martial artist, I'm a husband, but I'm also a chief information security officer. And it's when at the end of this pandemic, like many cybersecurity leaders, I, we were shot into space to protect these organizations from all of the emerging risks during the pandemic, but we kind of uh, burned up a little bit on re-entry. <laughs> when I decided to move on from the, from the city of Boulder, I found that I have had to tease apart where do I end and where does the role end, uh, and doing that in a way that will set my organization up for success for the next hundred years, because they still, you know, I may be gone, but they still need to have cybersecurity be a serious function. Right. If it's tied into my personality when I leave, where does that leave an organization? So I feel like it helped, it let me do a great job when I was there, but it wasn't necessarily the strongest position to be in to help transition the organization to their next security leader. Well, I think that, that making it yours is an alignment of passion. So it's not Typically, when you have that, it's not, oh, my job is stressful, even though if it really is, but it's the passion sort of drives you beyond that. And so it allows you to have a, a human and a natural accelerator to your job, to this commitment. But the challenge is, is that it can kind of eat you alive. So I think it's both necessary, but dangerous. I think many listeners have probably felt the same way. Um, and if you don't have that checked, if you don't have boundaries on it, it can lead to some really negative results. It's often very difficult to make change in an organization. It's often very difficult to generate something that's new in an organization. And so when you're faced with this and you make it personal and people can see in your eyes and then the tone of your voice that you care about this so much in a world where a lot of people don't give a damn about anything, right? It's a job. They clock in and they clock out. That's always fascinated me about this job, about the people that, about some of the people that are attracted to it. I align greatly to that, and I empathize with sometimes the pain, both in that emotion and then later in the detachment. I completely hear you and feel what you say here. If I can ask, you were there quite a while, a fairly long tenure for a CISO, building a program. What was the, from a personal standpoint, What's the point in time when you say, hey, it's time for me to do something else? And, and not in a way that's not meaning to be disparaging in any way to any organization or, or the city, but just from a human perspective, what were the things that you said, okay, I want to do something else? 
What was that? For me, there were two different things. The first one was exposure to a leader, a supervisor that really challenged me. So many cybersecurity leaders find that they're in conflict when they report to the IT director or the CIO of an organization. But I had a CIO who was very transformative from whom I learned quite a bit. And she had, as one of her personal goals, a quite serious plan of advancement for all of her people. So she didn't see it as ideal scenario for her people to be lifers, to sit and continue to do the same job year over year over year. Uh, And so when she, I think, was sold on my program, when I was able to demonstrate it to her and how sort of that people-first perspective was being manifested, and she decided she really liked it, she got excited about what was possible for me for the rest of my career, not just for what I was currently accomplishing in my career. And I had never really had a leader like that before. And that sort of broke open my perception to the idea that even though I, you know, I'm in a government role and the role will probably be available to me in perpetuity, that's probably not the way that I can contribute best. So at that time, you know, she was encouraging me to not only to be successful in my role, but to really plan and maybe do some regular interviewing, maintain those skills. And that is one of the things that opened me up to and prepared me well for looking for another role. Hold on there. So as part of her plan, she encouraged you as part of this plan to go see the rest of the world. Yes. And as part of that, to speak with other organizations about maybe helping them or at least seeing what they had to offer. Is that accurate? It is accurate. But, you know, it was more about keeping my eyes open for what was next for me rather than hanging out, even, you know, and riding on the success that I had created within the organization already. Right. And like I said, I, coming from a little bit of an older school background, the idea is if you've got good people, you never want to let them go. So it was very exceptional to have a leader who was like, wow, you're, you're really good. You should be ready to go. <laughs> seemed like a unique shift to me. It is. Benjamin, is it? So I want to poke at this a little more because I think it's important. If you are saying that it's an, an indicator, you feel that it's been a good thing for you as a person and for your career, maybe it's a good thing for others to see. So the point is, is if you have, do you have a leader? The question is, do you have a leader who is looking at what's best for you, even if that means the exploration of leaving? Yeah. And there's a point where I think, and you didn't say it yet, but you outlive sort of the growth of your position at your current company or post, right? So you have a point where if you're going to grow more, you either need to change your job or you need to leave and do that for someone else. Do you believe that to be roughly accurate or am I off? That's exactly right. And I think that's the other half of the puzzle. So having the opportunity or having the mindset available and then coming to terms with that trajectory of being a security leader where you've accomplished the things that your relationships are likely to let you accomplish. You've been around the block enough times that you're starting to see your effect muted in some way. And when you run out of steam like that, especially if you you build the program from scratch, it turns into the exact thing you just said, where you become acutely aware, almost continuously aware that your growth areas require a shift, probably into another role. And for some people that may be, it may be possible to become 
the IT director or CIO within their organization, but that's a weird shift for security people as well. And so the combination of those two was what set me on the path to ending my relationship with the city of Boulder and moving on to look for other opportunities. There's something that you shared with me that, depending on how you look at it, could be at odds with this message, or at least it may feel that way for some to receive it. I would feel this way, where they say, hey, we, you have a leader who's wanting you to explore and say, okay, it's time for you to leave the nest. It might be time to go. And let's say it's me, and I begin to say, okay, and there's some other things out there that look like fun challenges. I think I can affect more positive change if I enter those agreements and, and take those positions on, potentially. But at the same time, you shared with me that the program that you built, they said, hey, maybe we can replace you with a lower level person, maybe somebody who's not at the same title. And on one side of that coin, it's, hey, like maybe the responsible, maybe that's a positive thing. Maybe I've built it so well that you can, it can take on a more junior person. But on the flip side, maybe that's a little offensive to those that have a high degree of ownership to say, wait a minute, like you don't sort of respect the position well enough to find someone else to have that title. So tell me how you feel about that and how are you wrestling with that? What is the right way to feel since you're in the middle of it? And, and I mean, there's no right answer. Exactly. I am challenged by that. I think in many ways, my program was a victim of its own success. So having put together quite a few years without major incidents and without the loss of records and things like that, it perhaps creates a sense that the problem isn't as real or as imminent as it gets reported to be in the news or something like that. And I want to be careful too, because I don't think that that's the universal sense. I think that's just the sense of some specific people associated with, with an organization. And so I do think it is the case that in my organization, they decided not to maintain a chief information security officer role, and they decided to move on uh, to a different leadership strategy for the cybersecurity program. And certainly that's not something I was in agreement with, and I, I made a recommendation against that. But I do think that it is very challenging to have something that you feel is a part of you and to hand it off to others and to accept the choices that they make as the new stewards of that program, something that you built. <laughs> it is not easy to kind of breathe and understand that part of moving on and part of that growth arc that we're talking about where you, you have to move on is letting go of your previous uh, successes and, your, and the things that you built and your preconceptions about how they'll be used uh, moving into the future. And I have to say, just as a general rule, I think security people are all very well aligned around the fact that you really do need security leadership within any organization. And so it can be very hard to see something that you were, were hoping would last 100 years or more. Or if you put a lot of work into encouraging other organizations to create this kind of role, to see that role disappear after you. But the truth is that of course, they'll go back to having that role. That's something that all organizations will ultimately realize they have to have, if only when their insurance companies directly ask them, do you have someone in this role? Right. <laughs> and they're suddenly aware of the fact that they're now having to answer no, or, or else they won't be being honest in their response. But yeah, that, that's an exceptional challenge for me to feel like parts of my program are already fading away 
that was something that really caught me off guard. You know, it began even before I was gone. It's troublesome because there is the, the human ownership, the concept of legacy, but there's also, I think, in many of us that want to be the protector and want to warn people that, hey, here's the gravity of something that, that we at least believe that we understand, and we're trying to keep them out of that trouble. And for that to be also downplayed or ignored is hurtful, maybe, uh, or concerning for another reason, just because we're in a spot that, like, look, I'm, I'm telling you this thing can happen. And when the bad day is here, it's worse than you believe, right? I can tell by your actions. I can tell by how serious you are or how, how lax you are in your approach to listening to my message. So that's tough. That hurts. And coming from experience, being in a spot where warning a, a big company that they may have a very large China problem in this example, right? There's an adversary that's, that's after them. And I don't want to say ignored, but sort of uncertain and kind of in a spot where I believe, maybe even wrongly, but we need to respond right now and have their reality be different than my recommendation. That in and of itself is irritating, which is what I'm hearing come through. You've built this program and now it's sort of beginning to unravel. So this emotional reaction to leaving, to those that are in a similar spot, Benjamin, it's fresh on the mind for you. You made a, a transition document. You had a, a plea to continue the program. Walk us through what you would recommend. You don't have to say this is, may not even be exactly what you did, but for those that are transitioning to a new role like you are or know that it's time to go and you're sort of leaving your recommendation document, what are the things that it should contain? What do you recommend? What would you say? How would you say it? This was a huge challenge for me. I didn't realize it going in because it's not just a J-O-B for me, right? Because it's something that I'm really passionate about. It marked a final opportunity for me to contribute to the success of the organization. So I had, my presence had created some organization and that organization requires continuous energy to maintain. Uh, and in the absence of that energy, right, any organization is going to regress a little bit, at least towards the mean. And the mean, I think, is probably not good enough for most organizations. And so I went through a number of strategies in my mind. You know, do I make a laundry list of the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis? Do I jump in and do a lot of this for my organization and help them get all these things moved around and transitioned? Uh, do I demand a couple of names of individuals who I can hand this these responsibilities off to, not demand, but you know what I mean? Do I make a request and then fill out a document that lists the people who moved and shifted into these roles? And, and what I mean when I say this is things like getting signed up for ISAC memberships and receiving threat intelligence and processing, you know, who, who is going to listen to and process that threat intelligence from our community or maybe joining community conversations, maybe uh, something like, you know, ISACs and local area, like metropolitan area, cybersecurity groups all have meetings where they meet and talk through their programs and things like that. And of course, there's a horde of responsibilities. There's you know, dozens of accounts with vendors and things like that that are used to access information. And certainly within my program, there, were, there was more than one person signed up for those, but most of those types of systems and accounts don't have 
they kind of have an ownership account and then they have all of the other accounts. And so getting all those things transitioned turns into a laundry list. That stuff I thought was relatively easy to do and write down. Where it got to be a challenge was, and this is the kind of thing that I would do in a personal conversation and did do in a personal conversation, some kind of a request or a business case, in a sense, for the continuation of the work, for that continuation of a role, regardless of what it's titled, and the attention that needs to be paid to these things, and how to create a little bit of a sense of urgency around that attention. Because I think, especially when you're doing your job well, people don't really know all the things you're into, all of the ways that you've dug up risks to the organization and and made it easy for everyone to digest. You know, a lot of that's going to go away. And in my opinion, it can take as long as two years. It might even take a minimum of two years for a new leader to get hooked in to all of those different kinds of things again and get it going. And I don't think most organizations can survive a two-year leadership gap in the area of cybersecurity. That's a pretty big ask for most organizations. Missing the gap, but really what you're saying there is a a two-year potentially gap of efficacy, meaning you're going to have this sort of elastic moment after you leave, and then you're going to have a spin-up for whoever is new, no matter who that person is. But to go back, really, you said three things there. And I think this is something that is an ongoing thing for current and departing CISOs. For me, it's, you said, what you need to know. So you're notifying the rest of the leadership, here's what you need to know, kind of what I'm doing, right? Here's a framework of what you should care about. And then there's, here is that stuff. Here's the accounts, here's the points of contact, here's the vendors we use, here's comms, here's other things I was doing. And then you had a plea that was sort of this business case of continuation. But what's funny about all of that to me is all of that stuff, in a way, should have already existed or at least been part of your executive leadership's kind of the program level documents in a way, or, you know, we talk about succession planning, we talk about business resumption planning, right? Business continuity planning, DR. It's part of that, all of that to me, right? And you're, you are doing this kind of extra. Did anyone tell you to put this together or you just did it all? I just did it all. But you know, what's fascinating about your point is that that's exactly right. And while I was able to use a lot of the artifacts and materials from my program to put it together, as I was putting it together, I did have that exact realization. It probably was a great task just to get together. What does, what does my role entail? What are all these relationships that we maintain? You know, I had a controls document, for example, and that made it easy for me to find all the accounts and, and locations and things to transition over. But they were never formatted that way. And in formatting them that way, I certainly learned a lot. But what I was going to say that's fascinating to me is that the other thing I learned and was blown away by is that halfway through the creation of a transition document, I realized I was also writing an initiation document for my next program. So I was distilling what I had learned and what I had built into something that I could also use in the reverse order to start up a new program at a new organization. And that's something that I suddenly realized I was going to be using this document in that way in my next role. I was headed that way. And I think that that's a product of just general experience and having to push through these types, like the observation that we can only come to 
after going through the problem. Like even if we thought of doing this, it still wouldn't be as good as that sort of natural recognition on this. And so I completely agree that now going in, this is something, and, and we'll get into this a little more, but it's almost the things you start talking about as you interview or as you begin to set expectations going into the new position and say, colored by wanting to avoid the emotions and the feelings and the friction associated with this to say, here's what you really need. Here's what I think you need to know, whether you know it or not. This is what I think you need to know about the position and the program. And here's exactly what that stuff is. And as part of that, here's the business case that I intend to use or the language I tend to socialize, both in this introductory sort of offer of me, but also in an ongoing message of the program to gain support and political relevance within the company. And I really love that. So the initiation document. But you said something else, I think, is another recognition. You said, if you're doing all this well, they may not know. Now, that I think is a product of being evaluated primarily, which is a curse of being evaluated primarily on failures and not on successes. So you just admitted to me that you were running all this extra stuff and people didn't know because it was quote unquote going well. And it was, I would say, but you weren't giving yourself credit. You weren't getting any recognition for that effort, which either means they didn't know it was good stuff. They didn't respect what it was anyway, or it didn't go into that document of what you need to know. Meaning if you could hit reset. And so now you have all of this, you can sort of weigh and sell that quote unquote, on the way into the next gig. What are your thoughts on what I just blathered on about there? <laughs> I think that is the case. And certainly not just into my next gig, but there's actually an ongoing effort here in Colorado to create knowledge and quality resources for all local government leaders in cybersecurity. And so something like a transition document, you know, now that we've got people who've built programs and who are moving into their second program, because this is all a relatively new field, I suspect that kind of document will be very helpful for future generations of security people to be able to kick off programs. So I'm going to try to work on some of that. I want to address your recognition perspective. It was always fine with me to know that we were actually protecting our people. That was about as much recognition as I ever really needed. And I think it's really valuable to note, uh, however, that all organizations could stand to look at how they hold each other accountable how they hold leaders accountable, and if their accountability programs for their managers and their department heads and things like that are producing the results that they're hoping to produce. Because you're, you're absolutely right. In most organizations, people are too busy to recognize each other's successes. They only have time and energy to recognize each other's failures. And cybersecurity is an area where failure is fairly obvious and fairly directly associated with and attributed to the chief information security officer. So there is always going to be that dimension. But I do think that the reason that much of my program was not well understood wasn't so much about recognition as it was about how arcane cybersecurity is as a field, especially when you're in an organization that isn't a tech organization at all. Right. So I'm not in a tech organization. The mission of my organization is to protect our residents, to create an amazing community. And no one there knows anything about cybersecurity. That's my job. And I don't expect them beyond taking on the basic skills that, that I'm attempting to educate them about. I don't expect them to understand the Byzantine inner workings of what I've done for them. 
And in fact, what I've done for them is a little weird, right? I set up an intelligence organization within the organization to learn about all the emerging threats. And although it's not really, it kind of feels like surveillance. It kind of feels like spying or something creepy. And there really isn't any of that, but I could see how that, how there could be a misapprehension about what's going on, right? None of that's being done for any purpose other than to benefit the organization and to directly serve people and help identify mistakes and help everyone recover gracefully from those mistakes really rapidly. But it's a weird conversation to have, especially if you're in a real values-based organization. And so sometimes you just run it and maybe don't talk about it too much. (laughs) Well, I would counter that. I think you talk about it through good storytelling. And that's what most people fail in when thinking about an Intel program. It's the ability to to understand, look, there's kind of two very high-level forms of Intel. There's speeds and feeds and hashes and IOCs and other other crap that mostly is not valuable because it's not reused, mostly. Not always, but mostly. Then there's storytelling. Then there's sort of slower Intel. And that is, both of those can be used in storytelling into getting the attention of other leaders to say, look, a local government similar to ours had this problem let's work together to avoid that same fate in this example, right? This is a, and there's technical bits in this, but the story is this. And we wouldn't know this if we didn't have a way to share this information safely. And that's why I've built X. And you know this, I I know I don't, I'm not telling you anything new here, but I think that's the, people do get scared a little bit, but I think that's why we need to work a little harder as an industry at socializing why why we do these things and why it's important to having a great community in this example. There's two more big topics I want to cover with you with the time we have remaining. One is, I think, extremely important. There's a broader issue that you mentioned, and you said this to me, and I really like it, and I agree. CISOs are not good at creating contracts for employment because there's sort of a newness to it. And you referenced this colleague of yours, I think, or a friend in industry was telling a story, and kind of put conditions of employment. And I want to put it out there that if any listener, I think putting together a list of questions and topics going in as a CISO interview, I think there should be a community effort on this. If you're interested in participating, hit me up on LinkedIn. But I think this is phenomenal, this idea, Benjamin. You were sharing some of this with me. So we're not good at a lot of things. This is one of them. What's your thoughts on this? What are some things we should consider going in that we could do better that maybe leads to a better outcome when we get there? Yeah, this is a topic that has interested me for a little while, and I've seen it help people be really successful in the role as well. If you were in a more ordinary leadership role within an organization, let's say you were coming in as the HR director or the chief people officer or something like that, it's pretty normal that you would not be under the sort of general employment terms, but that you would negotiate a contract for your employment that make some basic modifications for those employment terms. And I think you would you can see this pretty easily if you look around and talk to some folks in those other sort of classic leadership roles. So the kinds of terms that they define are, I think, can be broken out into a couple of categories. Uh, the first one is, and this is near and dear to my heart, it takes like a minimum of six months to secure another security leadership role. It's quite difficult. Uh, It's difficult to find people to kind of cast a spell on the world and bring a new role for yourself into existence and then successfully defend yourself as a great choice for that role. And because of that, I think it's really valuable for us as security leaders to 
make sure there's some language in our employment agreement around giving us a time window if the organization wants us to move on. So no no one who negotiates an employment contract would ever be able to negotiate that you can't let me go. Obviously, nothing can abridge an organization's right to let you go. But you but it's really powerful to say, hey, I need three months of notice if you're going to change my reporting structure or my job title or or if you're going to release me from the organization. And that gives you time to build out you know, some transition work, like what we've talked about here, gives you time to find, or it gives you a head start on securing your next role. And I think we, as security people, because we are, our role is so new within organizations, we don't know to ask for some of that, that kind of thing. Another thing the industry is seeing is a pay-for-performance strategy. So I think, for example, if you were in healthcare, as an executive, you would be defining what success looks like. And in security roles, that might mean that there are no major incidents or that there is under, you know, that there is no uh, data breach, you know, or maybe a records loss count or something that is appropriate or that is a target for the organization, or maybe it's a recovery goal from an existing security incident that they're bringing you in to help handle. And the reality is that are in a position as a security leader to ask for like bonus compensation if you meet those goals. And that way you can, you can get organizations to pay for performance instead of just paying you your ordinary wage. And that kind of thing, it both helps the organization understand what success looks like and what they're asking when they bring you in as a security leader. And it also gives, you know, it, it creates a backdrop of professionalism around our role that has the organization understanding that right. this is important, right? And that you're, you're paying for it, so you might as well treat it at a similar level of importance as your other leaders. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. But. I think it makes complete sense. I think that if you're going in and you're the only candidate that's asking about this stuff, that's certainly a differentiator and ought to be a good one. The other thing I would say, in addition, is accountability for other positions or asking who, who will own certain things, right? The majority of a security role is you're dependent almost completely on the the behaviors and the the cooperation of others in order to have a relevant program. And so to sign up and say, push back a little bit on something you said and say, well, you know, there's certain records or something or breaches, or I would be hesitant to put that in there as a as a condition of my personal employment contract, because I don't know what kind of assistance I'm going to get from others. Meaning I may be to bring the best security team to bear ever, but if I don't have the cooperation from others and there's no owner, a simple example is, look, you want me to protect the environment, but you don't have an asset list, right? So if no one, who owns an asset list? It's not the CISO. The CISO needs the asset list to help do things like patching and response and cleanup and analysis, detection, right? The, the first two CIS controls are often left to just flap in the wind. And the CISO ends up owning the pain of others. And so I w- would encourage those, agree to build great and relevant capabilities and define what those are that are adversary aligned and then force that organization to track the adoption of those. And who are the owner? Who are the people that should adopt them? Ask things like, do we do M&A well? Do we manage our data centers on-prem or cloud well? Do we have owners? Who owns things? Right, well, most organizations, and it's and again, the CISO and the, the security teams left to hold that bag of trash. But that's that to me is really important to get right going in, and we royally screw that up. And I see so much frustration. So again, I'm going to say it again. I've never done this 
hit me up on LinkedIn if you're interested and just just send me one point, something you think that as a community, security people should ask about or ask for going in. And it may be on a contract, it may not. It could be just an interview question. We have to start interviewing better. We're getting interviewed. We have to interview better. So send that on. I'll share an awesome example. I have a friend who's the CIO of a school district, and this, he made it extremely clear that he was a cloud CIO and that he wasn't going to maintain an on-premise infrastructure. And in a brilliant move, he got it in his contract that he will not set up on-premises equipment like servers, essentially, and data centers for the organization. And as soon as he got in, they didn't want to do it. They said, you know, we are, well, we understand you're a cloud person, but, you know, maybe we can have a 10-year roadmap for that. And he said, no, it's in my contract. I'm not setting up the stuff. You are going to fund these cloud-based services instead. And it worked. And he moved, he shifted the entire school district off of their premises. Uh, He did exactly, and whether you agree with that, right, or not, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And he got it done by being very clear in his negotiating work at the outset. And I would be so powerful for a security leader to do something like that. I, I, I don't have the answer for it. I'd love to hear what people are thinking about in this space. But if you were able to know what your ask was going into a role, and you could get that clearly defined, it would be pretty powerful. I'm excited to see what people do with this idea. Yeah. you know, I don't know that there's a perfect list, but I think we have to start talking about it because it, it's, it begins to set the stage of how you're treated you know, when you go into an interview, I think we lack, because of the relative newness of the position and some of the circumstances that brought us into InfoSec and, and moved some people into leadership, despite the, the C and the O and the responsibilities and the bad day factor and the emotion that we have to put into all of this, that sometimes we still struggle with relevance. And even though we've got the C and the O or high level, whatever, VP title, SVP, EVP, we're not quite yet at the big table. So what are the things that the other folks at the big table do? What's the right way? What's the relevant and honest way to treat ourselves and our career? That is important. So let's continue that conversation. I don't know what shape it'll take, but I do have one more question for you. We close every show on this, and it's a chance to share a new idea or recap, but pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO. Benjamin, what does being a new CISO mean to you? To me. Being a new CISO means to place an organization and its people under your protection. So as I was saying before, I did build a program, and that program was indistinguishable from me as a person. And there are significant drawbacks to that, emotional drawbacks to that. But I'll tell you right now that I would and I will do it again exactly like that. I believe that the CISO is finally someone who is there to protect the organization, to stand in between the people and not just the flood of emerging risks that are coming out of international communications, organized crime, hacktivist groups, and all those different kinds of adversaries, but even someone who can help other human beings navigate mistakes, navigate situations that, that would otherwise make them ashamed, that they would try to conceal in order to protect their employment in order to protect their families. The CISO, particularly the new CISO, is in a unique position to serve the human beings of an organization with a type of service that they have not traditionally gotten from their leadership structures in the past. And it's an exceptional, in my opinion, 
It's an exceptional challenge, but one that is a real honor to get an opportunity to undertake. So I would encourage any new CISO out there or any CISO who is finding themselves seeking renewal after this pandemic to be refreshed in your commitment to the individuals and the families and the customers and the people of the world who are counting on us to stand in between all of these different kinds of risks and, in fact, who are encouraging everyone to stand together shoulder to shoulder against this wave of risk that's kind of breaking over our world. That is my considered opinion on the (laughs) subject of what it means to be a new CISO. That's a fantastic compass. Benjamin, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.